0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is US Farm Report.
1: Welcome to US Farm Report. This weekend I'm Tyne Morgan and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. A possible win for ethanol, but a new mountain to climb for turning ethanol into sustainable aviation fuel. Drought disappeared in parts of the country, but parched soils continue to grasp areas heading into spring.
2: There's no
3: uh, wave your
2: magic wand and fix a drought. It is gonna take mother nature to do that. How to flip your
1: pastures in the face of drought. An act of fate nearly 60 years ago that changed the course for one Iowa family. Tom came home one day and said the lock for sale. We bought it. And at 87 years young, it's her grit and business sense worth celebrating.
2: She's kind of a force of nature. There's no doubt about it. She. Um, and and probably even more so than anybody realizes.
1: We share that story in this month's Women
4: in Ag.
0: U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when the testing grounds meet the proving grounds. Pioneer what's next happens here
1: now for the news several new developments this week that could impact the renewable fuels industry including epa approving an expansion of e15 in the midwest but starting next year epa announced thursday the decision to approve a request from midwestern governors to allow year-round sales of e15 however it will delay the start until april 28 2025 or until after the election The government currently restricts E15 sales in the summer months. That's due to environmental concerns over smog, but biofuel proponents say those are baseless claims. EPA is expanding the sale of E15 in eight states. That includes Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Oil refiners argue allowing the sale of E15 in only select states versus across the U.S. could cause localized price spikes and supply constraints. But Reuters also reporting the Biden administration could soon announce an adjustment to the scientific modeling for ethanol. One that it says will show the fuel is less effective at reducing greenhouse gas emissions than previously estimated. The adjustment could make it more difficult for ethanol producers to take part in tax credits aimed at sustainable aviation fuel. However, there would be a potential avenue for ethanol producers to qualify for the credits if they work with corn growers that practice sustainable farming methods. Reuters says the change would reflect the more precise consideration of the environmental consequences and would also incentivize climate-smart farming practices such as no-till and cover crops. A White House spokesperson telling Reuters no final decision, though, has been made. The ethanol industry holding the National Ethanol Conference in San Diego this week highlighting the importance of E15 and biofuels. The Renewable Fuels Association also releasing the economic impact of low-carbon ethanol and its co-products, saying last year more than 72,000 U.S. jobs were directly associated with the ethanol industry. It says the industry created $32.5 billion in household income and contributed just over $54 billion to the nation's gross domestic product, calling it the second-highest GDP contribution ever. <laughs> Well, drones are fast becoming a popular tool for producers, but now the FBI is issuing a warning about using drones manufactured in China. The agency saying drones from China continue to post a significant risk to critical infrastructure and national security. Officials say if ag drone users don't maintain the integrity of the information they collect, that there is a potential for that information to be exploited. They say information from drones can be stolen in transmission if linked to wireless networks using compromised software and hardware that are integral to the operation of the drone. Several federal agencies have banned the purchase and operation of drones from companies such as DJI and fellow Chinese commercial drone makers, XAG and Auto Robotics due to their potential for exploitation. We have much more about this and what you need to watch out for in a story that we've posted on agweb.com. Well, if it feels more like spring than winter, you are not alone. Warm weather is pouring into the lower 48 much of the country right now, and we'll see above average temperatures through next week, USDA says it appears that spring is as much as two weeks early this year from the Southern Plains to the Carolinas and southeastern Virginia and BMWX says this winter has been one of the top five warmest ever across the Upper Midwest, Great Lakes and New England, adding it's also the lowest heating demand winter on record to date. Now, despite widespread cold in January, forecasters say the warming trend is expected to continue into March.
2: We do expect to see continued near or above normal temperatures, the greatest likelihood of those warm conditions, focused as they have been all winter across the northern United States. That doesn't mean we can't have cold outbreaks during March. As we saw during January, a warmer-than-normal month, we had a very sharp cold outbreak right in the middle of the month for about 10 days. So we do have to be concerned with the warm spring that we could see episodic cold outbreaks causing potential harm to winter grains and fruit crops as well as ornamentals."
1: Take a look at this. Ice coverage across the Great Lakes is now record low due to the well above average temperatures across the region. Rippey says he does expect storms to continue slamming California, while the rest of the country sees below or near normal precipitation heading into spring but we just mentioned it it definitely did not feel like winter this week with a major warm up for much of the US does Matt Engelbrack agree with how long it could stick around that's next
5: farm journals smart farming
0: week exploring innovation on the farm the technology of tomorrow ready for today US farm report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing Poly sides, floor, and a rear monoblock gearbox on vertical beater models are just some of the great features of the HS Hydra Push 425 and 550 bushel model manure spreaders. Find out more about the Hydra Push at the HS website.
1: Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht joining us now with weather. Matt, I lost track of the number of tractors I saw doing field work this week taking place around Kansas City. Tillage and hydrosammonia. It's an early start to spring and it looks like it could stick around a while.
6: We're looking at that temperature outlook between the 27th and the uh, 2nd. As uh, Tyne was saying, it is gonna stick around. Uh, This isn't a day or two day type pattern that we're seeing all the way into early March. And you got high confidence in above average temperatures, not only into the Midwest and the Northeast, but back here towards the West as well. One thing that we do have to keep our eyes out for regarding Tuesday and Wednesday is the severe weather potential now in terms of the precipitation outlook what comes with the warmer air is also the chances of some wetter than normal conditions but you can see how things are placed of the ridge right back over here for an extended period of time and then a low pressure system or a trough trying to work across the united states picking up that gulf moisture and pushing up here towards the north and to the northeast so some rain chances on the way for parts of not only the midwest but also the east and the south back here as well. Another indication of a trough coming through uh, looks like next weekend and we'll talk more about that in a second. One thing that uh, we do want to make note of as we go into the week ahead, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, meteorologist we've been circling Tuesday and Wednesday since last week uh, for the severe weather potential. Again, we're going to have to see how it materializes, but we're starting to get into that part of the season. Despite what the calendar says, these warmer than average temperatures and a trough like this that is going to be digging across the United States, uh, those are just a few of the ingredients you need for the potential for severe weather. Rather shallow Tuesday and into Wednesday, but you combine that cold, dry air with the warm, and also the elevated dew points in the other one and that's where you get potential for some severe weather. Now when it comes to severe weather especially in this pattern uh, this isn't uh, days after day of uh, severe thunderstorms or even uh, thunderstorms in general rather this is going to be moving out and we get more zonal Wednesday, Thursday and Friday with that Ridge trying to rebuild. But as we just looked at another trough, a deeper one uh, sets to take shape back on the West Coast. Uh, So this is kind of a long way of saying expect above average conditions for four or five days straight. A break with a trough coming through the potential for some thunderstorms and then back into this kind of pattern. Four or five days with high pressure and uh, relatively quiet and warm weather. Check that out. That's Sunday this is impressive in terms of the warmth coming to the Midwest and the East. Quick check of that drought monitor still looking at uh, some much needed rain in the forecast for Iowa. Thanks Matt. Well a
1: Brazilian firm continues to cut its soybean forecast but the markets seemed unfazed this week. We'll talk about it next with Joe Jansen and Ben Brown next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Joe Jansen as well as Ben Brown on the show this weekend. It's kind of a battle of the universities, University of Missouri, University of Illinois, a lot to talk about. First, let's talk about Brazil. It appears the soybean bulls are kind of just standing on the sidelines right now despite some fundamental news. I mean, this week we saw Brazilian firm AgroConsult lower its Brazil soybean crop estimate by 1.6 million metric tons, Joe, down to 152.2 million metric tons. Why was that not enough to kind of light a fire under these markets?
7: I think a lot of this is already priced in. We're seeing, you know, a, a sort of dueling crop estimates. Uh, some of those, frankly, are sort of to grab attention as much as to uh, as much as to get an accurate estimate. We we saw Conab lower their number a few weeks ago now, but in a pretty significant way. And I think it's sort of wait and see until until something, you know, some significant weather event occurs. Uh, where this might have a bigger play is in the corn market, where we have to think about what the sophrenia, Crop is going to look like planting progress is pretty quick on the basis of you know quicker soybean uh, harvest progress, um, and that's sort of maybe where we might get some real news about Brazilian crops.
1: Yeah, but do we have a pulse of kind of that Safrina corn crop and where it sets right now?
3: Well, It's on pace. Uh, all the risk premium that we had earlier about concern about that crop seems to have kind of deteriorated away from this market. Um, so the soybean comment and how it feeds into to corn as well. One of the things that I think is interesting is even though we've seen these production estimates decrease, I think there's now a growing conversation about has acreage in Brazil actually increased faster than what we maybe anticipated given these large amounts of supply That are coming into the cash market. If that is the case, that also holds true for corn as well, that we could see actually, or we might be experiencing higher safrenia corn acreage than what we maybe have thought the last couple of years.
1: Well, it has been some unusually mild weather across the Midwest lately. So a ton of field work going on, a lot of anhydrous being put on. But the Ag Economist monthly monitor, Joe, showed economists think farmers will plant 91.5 million acres of corn this year, 86.6 million acres of soybeans. And it was pretty much in line with what we saw out of the Ag Outlook Forum last week, which was 91 million acres of corn, 87.5 million acres of soybeans. I mean, right now, do you think that shifts much or is that pretty much in, in line with expectations?
7: I personally I think there's maybe a little bit of room to boost the soybean acreage number. Uh, My personal number is a little bit higher than that kind of on the basis of what we saw coming out of say 2013-14 the last time we came out of a period of very high prices like we've experienced in the last three years Um, but ultimately that's not a a massive you know market shifting number whether it's a million acres in in one direction or another. Uh, I think there's going to be just a, a significant supply if we get you know on average or trend level yields uh, in the U.S. this year.
1: Ben, is it possible that we repeat a situation like last year when we had that unusually mild and dry spring that we saw so many more corn acres go in than, than expected?
3: Yes. That's the answer. Um, And I think that is the concern. Uh, Certainly, you know, do we need 4 million more acres of corn in in this current demand situation? No. Do we need that many more acres of soybeans in this current situation? No. And so I think that's the question. What do we do with, let's just say, 4 to 6 million acres of both crops combined that it doesn't appear the demand uh, is needing at the moment?
1: Joe, speaking of demand, how do our export sales, how is that pacing right now?
7: I think sort of roughly in line with where USDA's current WASD projections are at, we've seen kind of a slow pace for the past two months on soybean export demand, but a lot of that's really built into to the estimates that USDA has already put out. Um, if we were to sort of see kind of a rebound in demand for U.S. soybeans coming out of China, uh, sort of in this post lunar new year holiday period, when we do kind of typically get maybe a little bit of a, a last last gas bump in soybean export demand, that could maybe move that number a little bit higher. Uh, but ultimately, with the situation in Brazil where you've got really cheap soybean export bids uh, at Brazilian ports, uh, I think we're sort of in line with expectations at the moment.
1: Ben, if exports stay at this pace and we don't find additional demand, these kind of the, the prices or that we're going to deal with, or, or could we trend even lower, do you think?
3: Well, That's the problem. We've got a lot of supply on the market. Ukraine and Russia are dumping uh, large amounts of volume onto the market at really any given price that they can get, just to help fund uh, a variety of different things, including the war. Um, couple that with, you know, the still second largest corn and soybean crops out of out of Brazil and South America. Or well, record crops out of South America as a whole, and and we end up in this picture where we're really struggling to find support on the low end. Um, And and then you tie it in with this acreage discussion that we were just talking about. We could be on a path, at least my expectations is we are on a path to have over 17 billion bushels worth of corn supply um, for our new crop year. And that's just that's a very bearish picture uh, to maintain.
1: Wow. Well, news this week. Mexico will continue to buy corn from the U.S. despite uh, the ongoing issue with genetically modified corn. We'll talk about that, but we need to take a quick break first. Welcome back, Joe Jansen, as well as Ben Brown rejoining us. Well, Joe, Mexico says they will continue to buy corn for, for US from the US for livestock feed and industrial use. That's despite that ongoing formal dispute over its ban of imports of genetically modified corn. We've been talking about that, you know. But is that is that news or is that already priced in at this point, Joe?
7: I, I think that's priced in. I mean, Mexico has been uh, consistently the best export customer for US corn in the past year. Um, the, a big source of, of export demand for U.S. corn. And the economics just make sense. I mean, they're geographically proximate to us, uh, and it makes a lot of sense to move uh, feed uh, into into Mexico.
1: Let's switch gears a little bit to to wheat and what's going on over in Europe. Ben, Ukraine called on the European Commission this week to take robust action after Polish farmers blockaded the border and opened rail cars to let grain spill out. I mean, as we continue to see this situation, it is amazing to see how much grain we are continuing to see move out of Ukraine and Russia.
3: Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. The fact that we've seen as much grain get out of the countries uh, the last two years is is really kind of amazing uh, from a variety of different fronts and, and different channels. And certainly we've seen this protest and this conflict now starting to emerge with some of the European uh, Union border countries that are accepting this grain or at least helping channel some of this gr- Ukraine grain uh, to African countries and, and the rest of the world market now starting to push back against that supply channel. So um, as a result, uh, you know we have... Uh, baked in at least maybe into some into our expectations about uh, grain flows moving forward, uh, starting to reduce some of that exportable supplies out of Ukraine in the years ahead, even though we haven't really seen the war have that big of an impact necessarily on grain flows to date. Uh, it has been a little bit, but just the sheer amount of products coming out um, has has been there. We certainly see that starting to taper off in, in the next couple of years.
1: And as far as wheat goes, burdensome supplies, Ben, just like we were talking about with corn and soybeans, same situation there?
3: Well, actually, it's kind of interesting. We actually see supplies for global U- or for U.S. wheat uh, starting to tighten. Um, but prices are are falling along with all of our other commodities to help build or to buy some feed demand and stuff like that into the mix. But wheat supplies actually are, are, in, are tightening a little bit relative to corn and soybeans that are increasing.
1: Joe, seeing a lot of talk about managed money or, or the funds. And, you know, when you look at their position right now, currently in corn and soybeans, are there any signs of them exiting that position? And what impact will or could that have on the markets?
7: Yeah, I think there's, there's talk that, you know, when the funds bail on this massive short position that they have, that's got to give some support to prices. I think, you know, I think you've got to see some sort of something change in the overall market trend. My take is that the, the funds are mainly momentum traders or trend followers, they're they are taking that net short position because prices have been declining uh, due to fundamentals. Um, if they exit, I think they'll be met by active selling on the other side. The, the, the demand from the U.S. farmer to, to see up some kind of rally and sell into it uh, is gonna be pretty strong. All
1: right, Ben Brown, Joe Jansen, thank you so much for joining us. We need to take a quick break and then we'll be back with much more U.S. Farm Report.
5: Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're gonna head down to Oklahoma to check out a 1957 John Deere 620.
8: I bought it fr- from a guy in East Texas that lost interest, and a lot of the work was done when I, when I bought it from him, and I finished, go ahead and put everything back together as best as I could, original. I hate to see old tractors go to the junkyard. I just get old tractors, and some of them I start with just a bucket of rust, some of them I buy, like this one, that was partially done. Some of them, every now and then, I buy one that somebody else has done, and I do it my way. There's nothing else better than after you work on one for two or three years when you crank it over and it starts. If this tractor could tell stories, I would sure like to listen to them. There's there's none of my tractors I've ever been able to trace back to the original owners. This is two cylinders, and it starts real slow, but then when it starts up, it just, it just comes to life. It's got power steering. I bought this one for two reasons, because it's younger than most of my other tractors. There, I got a 41, a 39. And my lady friend that goes to the shows with me, she weighs about 100 pounds soaking wet, and she likes the one with the power steering. So, everybody's happy.
1: While dry soils continue to be a concern in areas, so do dry pastures. But how can you flip those pastures even while weathering mother nature? That's next. Plus, she's a force to be reckoned with why this 87-year-old is a true trailblazer as we head to Iowa later in the show.
0: You're watching U.S. Farm Report, trusted, timely, tradition. Flip Your Soil on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Smart Nutrition Map Plus MST. From the ground up, see this Smart Nutrition Map Plus MST sculpture come to life. Witness the power of your soil this season.
1: Ranchers in drought areas of the country have had very little grass production on their rangeland the last few years. But as the moisture starts to return, Michelle Rook shows us how they can flip their soil to achieve higher production.
9: As the drought starts to break here in cattle country, producers need to reestablish stands and pasture and grassland before they reintroduce cattle. That can be achieved through a targeted nutrient management and weed control program. And that will also yield more pounds of grass per acre. Drought still lingers in more than 14% of the nation's cattle production areas according to the U.S. Drought Monitor for the week of February 13th. Todd Wilkinson saw it firsthand during his travels the last year as NCBA president.
5: I've been to parts of the country that are very
9: difficult yet. When I was down in Mississippi, I was amazed at the number of cows that were leaving the
2: countryside. There's no uh, way of your magic wand and fix a drought. It
9: is going to take Mother Nature to do that. However, last year at this same time, 54% of cattle country was in drought, so pasture and rangeland in many areas has seen a big improvement.
10: We're seeing a lot more moisture ac- across the U.S. We're seeing more states come out of uh, drought stress, and the biggest thing is getting more pounds of grass on our acres for our units of cattle.
9: To achieve that, Canex says it starts with a baseline soil test, and producers can get assistance from their local extension agent or NRCS representative.
10: They can guide you through where um, placements, there should be a pattern that they would recommend on where you would take your soil samples, and then they can come back and tell you you need to either put down nitrogen. Um, Typically out west we don't run as high of rates on our rangeland because we don't want to stress the grass.
9: She recommends fertilizing pastures in late winter or early spring when those areas have just received moisture or there's precip in the forecast.
10: Fertilizer is great. We can do it through liquid um, aerial applications or we can do dry ground rigs and and we even see some dry go out by air. But it's good because it gives that grass a boost. It gives it a boost coming off of either some moisture in the spring or if what little bit we do get. We want all that moisture to go to our grass. And we don't want to boost those noxious or invasive weeds. We want that to go to our grass and the fertilizer helps boost that grass and make it more lush for our cattle.
9: Kaynick couples that with a weed control program to get ahead of weeds when they're small. She says this is especially important for improving range and pasture land after successive years of drought.
10: We can boost the grass and put fertilizer down, but if we're not also controlling those noxious weeds or invasive weeds that could fill in, and now that we're seeing more moisture across the western U.S., the weeds can sit dormant for a long time in the soil. And when we finally get a moisture event, they're going to bloom and they're going to take off. And so it's crucial for ranchers to be scouting their pastures. And when we know we're gonna be getting some moisture coming off the spring is to combo that and get your herbicide out and get your broadleaf weeds taken care of so the grass can, and can grow.
9: Koenig says even in range areas that have been barren, perennial weed seeds can reestablish with very little soil moisture recharge.
10: Keyweeds, kochia took off and it was kind of like you walked out and all of a sudden it was there um, and you didn't realize it. Um, Canada Thistle, a lot of your perennials, they're going to be able to handle and, and get through the drought stress and you want to make sure we take care of those.
9: Areas of high traffic are likely to be the toughest to recover and may have the greatest weed competition.
10: But it's crucial, if we can, to let those areas rest. And then when we come back, again, evaluate. If there was a high traffic area, maybe we need to address the weed spectrum there. Maybe we're going to see a higher weed spectrum in that area because of the traffic and flow of the
9: cattle. Koenig also recommends monitoring the stand in season to make sure it's recovering and to identify any weed escapes.
10: It's crucial that ranchers pay attention and scout those fields because we don't want it to be too late when we go in with a herbicide application.
9: Producers can get more information at Corteva's website at rangeandpasture.com. I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle.
1: More protests in Europe, plus the ripple effect of tensions in the Red Sea. Ag Around the World is next. Now for Agriculture Around the World headlines, the latest Ag Economist Monthly Monitor shows economists' views on the U.S. net farm income picture continue to sink. But economists also say they're keeping a close eye on certain geopolitical factors, including the Chinese economy and the conflict in the Red Sea. Late this week, Yemen's Iran-aligned Houthis said they'll start escalating their attacks on ships in the Red Sea. Their leaders say they even introduced submarine weapons in solidarity with Palestinians in the Gaza War. The repeated drone attacks continue to impact commerce through the Red Sea. And the February Ag Economist Monthly Monitor, a survey of more than 70 ag economists from the U.S., asked the question, what are the potential impacts of ocean transportation issues on U.S. trade? Economists say they're watching increased freight costs amid the growing transportation challenges.
10: There's some speculation on the transaction costs and the overall benefit of trade as American ag products experience transport disadvantages due
1: to tensions in the Red Sea. The Houthis have vowed to continue their attacks until Israel stops its combat operations in the Gaza Strip. Ukraine taking out a stance against protesting Polish farmers after protesters scattered Ukrainian grain on railroad tracks. Ukraine's infrastructure minister calling the move politically motivated aimed at dividing the nations. Farmers in Poland have increased their protest against cheap Ukrainian grain imports in the EU's Green Deal. They have vowed to continue their demonstrations for 30 days, which started on February 9th. Farmers have also been blocking access to routes to border crossings with Ukraine. And in Madrid, Spain, farmers and ranchers, they are gathering to protest in front of the Ministry of Agriculture. They claim wholesalers and distributors buy their products at below cost. They are also concerned about European regulations, which they say they must comply with in order to continue their business. And in Greece, thousands of farmers staged an all-night protest near the Greek Parliament in Athens as part of a nationwide agricultural rally. The farmers' demands include lower energy prices, and end to the importation of some products, and more government subsidies they say that are needed to reduce production costs in their businesses. Well, Biofuels is back in the spotlight. That's Chip's Corner next. Welcome back. Well, Chip Flory in for Chip's Corner this week. Biofuels back in the spotlight again, Chip, and that's thanks to the National Ethanol Conference this week. What good stuff did you have on the show?
5: Well, they definitely have some optimism. There's no question about it. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the RFA leadership, uh, the U.S. Trade Reps Office, USDA's uh, Tom Vilsack. There's a lot of optimism out there. And here's how RFA's Troy Bredenkamp sees the industry right now. This is a
0: pivotal year for ethanol. Um, Our theme for this National Ethanol Conference was powered by partnerships. And we kind of just went right down the list of things. If they all break our way, it's gonna be a really good year for biofuels and in particular ethanol.
5: They all break our way. That's a critical point that Troy is making here. There are several things on the horizon. E15 in the eight Midwest states. That's probably going to be pushed over to 2025. Then E15 nationwide. We could see some movement on that. The GREET model. Will it make the ethanol to jet pathway clearer for uh, for corn-based ethanol in the year ahead? These are questions time that are going to have a major impact on the biofuels industry in in, in the years ahead. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. The Biden administration is making the same mistake the past administrations have made. What they're doing is they're trying to give a little bit to each of the interested parties in these biofuel decisions, which prevents them from going all in on biodiesel all in on ethanol all in on saf all in on renewable diesel it's preventing that from happening so what we end up with is kind of some some halfway efforts rather than a full effort on the biofuels in the year ahead that's kind of how i see things playing out it's going to be it could be a a frustrating year on a lot of fronts
1: Okay, real quick, you mentioned the Greek model, something that we're watching, I know, expecting an announcement, possibly March 1st. There's a lot of anticipation. How is it going to be interpreted? What is it?
5: What it is, is it is a model that determines just exactly what the land use uh, influence or effect is of corn-based ethanol and how it's impacting how we're using the ground for farming out there. The Greek model leans more favorable to corn-based ethanol than some of the old models that are saying that, while we've taken uh, much more ground out of other areas of agricultural production and put it into corn production. And don't just look at the U.S. when you're thinking about that. You also have to think about globally, including down in Brazil.
1: Okay, well, I'm hearing a lot of rumblings about that, so thank you for the clarification. All right, Chip Flora, you can hear him weekdays, 10 a.m. on AgriTalk AM, 2 p.m. Central, AgriTalk PM. As always, Chip, thank you so much for joining us. All right, we need to take a quick break. We're actually heading to Chip's Neck of the Woods next. We're heading to Northeast Iowa, an 87-year-old that is a true trailblazer. You won't believe her story. That's
4: Women in Act next.
0: Times Women of Ag is brought to you by John Deere, who celebrates the strength and resilience of the women who make farms run.
1: In the 1960s, every town had a meat locker. It's amazing how those times have changed. But for one locker in Northeast Iowa, thanks to the vision and grit of one couple, they were able to carve out a niche and grow a family business that now spans multiple generations. Much of that success was thanks to a true trailblazer Joan Kearns, as we show you this weekend in Women in Ag. Cut by cut, slice by slice. It's a business that's been sliced together over the past
4: 60 years. It happened by chance. With no master plan, it started with a farmer named Tom and a nurse named Joan. We were on his dad's farm for five years when his dad announced he was going to sell the farm. He wanted us to buy it. We could not afford to buy a huge farm back there. So they found a farm to rent three miles outside of Edgewood until an accidental fire on that farm sparked another change. So talk about an act of fate. We knew the lady was going to make us move that owned the farm because she believed those stories. Tom come home one day and send the lockers for sale. We bought it. Neither Joan nor Tom
1: knew anything about running
4: a meat locker, but they had the tenacity to make it work. Tom wanted to do the the actual meat cutting and that sort of thing and I was going to do all the books and the book work.
1: Starting out with only a saw and a grinder at the locker, it didn't stop Tom
4: or Joan from seeing phenomenal growth. And every year we were in business, we grew. Every year we got bigger and so finally we outgrew our plant. But she says it didn't come without financial hardships. They borrowed money to expand six different times. I remember. Maybe the second or third time, Tom said, I'm gonna go up to bank tomorrow and borrow some money for the next edition. And I went up to do our daily banking that day and the girl said, oh, we can give you the money. So I borrowed the money, got back, and I told Tom, I said, well, I got the money borrowed for our new edition. They let a woman do that? That's the way it was back then. Just
1: ask her son, Terry. He'll be the first to tell you his mom was a driving force behind the scenes, even if in the 60s and 70s, she didn't always get the credit she deserved.
2: She's kind of a force of nature. There's no doubt about it. She um, and and probably even more so than anybody realizes.
1: Joan's husband was dyslexic, so behind the scenes, Joan handled the paperwork and books, all while raising four kids at home.
4: A true trailblazer, the Kearns' unconventional ways also helped fuel the family business. The boys had come into the locker business as they graduated from high school, which really led us dream Banger. That was in the early 1980s. Tom and Joan
1: didn't see the boys as employees. They allowed the boys to buy into the business fresh
4: out of high school.
2: It wasn't popular with her peers that they allowed Jim and I to buy in at such a young age. You know, they gave us a huge opportunity.
4: And I think that's why we grew as we did because they were partners. They were gonna be in this it made a big difference. And since then, the growth has been even more impressive, building
1: this building in the late 1990s with even more expansion since.
2: We built this business because she was, she paid attention to detail and, um, and she wanted to make sure it was done right. So um, so she, she still keeps us on our toes.
1: At 87 years old, Joan is sharp and attention to detail may still be her greatest strength.
2: She is not afraid to tell us when she thinks we've done something wrong.
1: But she's also the first to celebrate how much the family business has grown, including four grandkids becoming part
4: owners too. Oh my gosh, I did not see that coming. And they each bring their own experience, knowledge, their forte to the business.
10: All of us in the third generation all, I feel, have a very unique skill set, which allows all of us to bring something different to the table.
4: None of us really overlap much. We,
1: We all have our own thing that we do, and it just works. Kate and Bailey along with Luke and Payson are the third generation owners of Edgewood Locker.
2: They've got experience, they've got education in meat science, in business. So as fun as it was to to grow from from mom and dad adding Jim and I, this next generation really has, um, they've got the potential to do amazing things.
10: We're just doing what we can to take the business to a new level. We uh, really expanded into wholesale stores and retail stores carrying our products. And just keeping going with what the second generation and first generation has been doing as well.
2: I'd like to say we had this great master plan, but we never had a, a real plan to say, well, next year we're going to get into wholesaling or next year we're going to do this. And we just kind of took it as it, something presented itself, we ran with it and ran hard with a lot of it.
1: With close to 130 full-time, part-time and seasonal employees, Edgewood Locker also offers other custom processing and has products for sale in more than 100 retail stores across Iowa. And it's that side of the business the third generation has already helped expand. I hope we can just continue the legacy.
10: I'm hopeful that we can just keep doing like we're doing, keep growing where we can and keep expanding things and have it all set up for the fourth generation if they would like to join in someday.
1: Walls of awards are a product of what Joan and Tom started in 1966 but that isn't what Joan is most proud of today. The greatest gift may just be the fourth generation and the chance to carry on a business that started on
4: hopes and dreams. I'm just so impressed. I can't be any prouder than the boys and those grandchildren. It's just awesome.
1: They have 30 different kinds of brats at Edgewood Locker. Just mind-blowing. By the way, Joan's grandson, Luke, told me the secret to why Joan is so healthy and sharp at 87 years old. Well, he says it's decades of eating a lot of beef and pork. Amen. Well, it was FFA week this week, and this weekend we're celebrating one Texas chapter who continues to be small but mighty. That story's next. Well, FFA chapters across the country celebrated National FFA Week this week. It's a week dedicated to sharing the great opportunities for youth in agriculture. And for one FFA chapter in the Panhandle of Texas, having only 40 members and one ag teacher has not stopped them from doing great things. As Nazareth FFA continues to win multiple state championships over the years, they're proof that determination is the key to success. The sounds of Nazareth FFA a national stage this fall as these five from a small 1A school in Texas were able to shine.
10: So we're a band. um, So she sings and plays guitar. She sings and plays guitar. He sings, plays guitar and does
9: drum. I do fiddle and then he sings.
1: The Nazareth, Texas-based Panhandle Posse won at the state level last year, going on to compete at National FFA Convention last fall. They finished in the top three and it all started when one of their biggest supporters had an idea.
3: Our freshman year, our act teacher kind of already knew that at least two of us, he thought he could maybe get a talent team going on when we got into high school. And then our freshman year tried it, and that's just kind of how it started.
9: He does a lot of great things for us. It may be a lot for him sometimes, but he, he may be a lot for us sometimes, but it always works out. So, Ask
1: any of these five members, and they'll tell you Mr. Heck has high expectations. Does he expect a lot from you guys? He does. He has the bar raised very high. But that's also why this FFA chapter has seen so much success.
6: I mean, it's really crazy to see,
2: uh, you know, we compete against these other big schools and schools that have two to three ag teachers and twice to three times as many ag kids as we do. And. I think it just uh, it comes back to the worth it, work ethic that
7: we're all raised with. My
10: freshman year, I never thought I would be getting involved in a lot of competitions and here I am now going. I went to state two times in quiz and I've been to nationals in town.
8: In life we work out Something
2: uh, FBA has taught me is uh, learning how to talk to people and uh, introduce yourself and just carry a conversation that could lead to
3: connections that you could use for the rest of your life.
1: Proof that no matter how small your community might be, with the right amount of determination and support, anything is possible. And I know there were tons of breakfasts across the country this week, as well as different days for FFA week to help celebrate. I hope everyone enjoyed it. All right, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Well, next weekend, we are on the road. It is Commodity Classic time, so we're off to Houston. We will have a live taping of U.S. Farm Report Friday morning. So if you plan to be at Commodity Classic, we would love to have you in the audience for that. All right, that does it for this weekend. Have a great weekend, everyone, and join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.